This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. everyone, I'm Michael, also known as Chicago Wiz, and this is episode 61, Holmes and OD&D. I had originally thought about this episode as being a way of explaining how I've used Holmes at times to help me out with OD&D, but as I actually got to thinking about it, I realized there wasn't quite as much as I had thought, and it turned out that Maybe my memory was a little faulty, but the biggest reason that I think of Holmes so much in going back to Holmes is because I've been using Holmes-inspired rules in my AD&D campaign for the last 14 years. Now, maybe I better take a moment and step back and explain what the hell Holmes is. Um, So D&D gets released in 1974, and... There's subsequent supplements released over the next three years. And in 1977, a box set is released with this thing called Basic D&D. Um, and the idea was, was that these rules would allow you to quickly pick up the game, play it, and then move on into the quote-unquote more advanced version of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which was also being released in 1977 through 1979. Um, This basic D&D was written by Dr. Eric Holmes. And what this was, was this was a set of house rules that Dr. Holmes had written and um, had connected with Gary Gygax and... uh, through the process of them getting to know each other and so on and so forth, this version of D&D was adopted to be the basic D&D. But it really is OD&D, or the original 1974 D&D, under the hood. Now, I'm not going to try to get into too much of the history of Holmes because I am not the expert. Um, In fact, Who I'm going to point you to is the same person that I've read voraciously over the years, and that is Xenopus. Uh, Xenopus's blog and archive is just full of tons of information on Holmes, how it came to be, uh, lots of details and investigative type of deep dives into the rules. I know Xenopus has um, talked about and gone over various manuscripts and documents and letters and whatnot that he has in his research over the Holmes basic set. And this goes back years and years. I mean, he's done amazing work. I will put a link to his blog in the show notes. If you're interested in this very important part of D&D's history, I highly recommend going and uh, checking out his blog and information. Okay, so that's where Holmes came from. Holmes is the D&D that I actually started with when I uh, was walking through the Rinks discount store and saw this brightly colored box with a dragon and a wizard and a a, a knight on front, and I just had to have it. Um, But Holmes served to launch me into AD&D because it's sprinkled throughout the text. You know, if you want to advance, go to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and so on, and so I did. Uh, marketing at work. So 
why Holmes has been so important to me for the last 14 years is because there are certain little bits and pieces of Holmes that I unconsciously or consciously brought with me into my games. And even before I had started my AD&D game back in 2009, I had started a duet OD&D game with my wife. Um, just as a way to share time with her and to learn, relearn, if you will, about Dungeons and Dragons. And I <laughs> I took her through the example dungeon that comes in Holmes Basic. And <laughs> when we, even to this day, when we talk about that dungeon, she still remembers avoiding the ghoul-filled room. Spoilers. And she immediately shut the door after seeing them and fled away. <laughs> And it was just brilliant. And she still doesn't like the uh, thought of ghouls to this day. So Holmes then served as kind of a, a way for me to bring in little bits and pieces of things that I had remembered from my childhood and a way of connecting back to the game that I liked. Plus, there's a couple of really neat tidbits, and I, and I want to cover those tidbits, and I also want to go through kind of a quick and dirty comparison of Holmes to OD&D and see what is better clarified, what's different, what's the same, and so on. And, it, you know, just as a way of being able to show, yeah, there's some connection here, and it's an interesting connection. So what things do I use from the Holmes Basic in my AD&D and OD&D games? And there's um, two main things. One is scrolls. Um, in Holmes, all levels can make scrolls. And the mechanic is 100 gold pieces per level of the spell and one week of work per level of the spell. And you can make your you can make your scroll. Now it, compared to OD&D, where you have to be, I believe it's ninth level. I could be misremembering this because uh, I don't have the books in front of me, and I didn't put that in my little uh, script here. Um, but OD&D has has a much higher requirement, and Holmes basically lets you combat it from the beginning, which is really neat in a way because. One of the things that a lot of magic users hate is, yeah, I memorize my spell, I walk into the dungeon, we run into a big group of monsters, I use sleep, and I'm done for the day, or for the adventure, depending on how you play the game. Well, by being able to create these scrolls, then that allows you to do a number of things. One, you can then just, you know, next time you need a sleep spell, you don't have to have it memorized. You pull out the scroll and you read from the scroll and bada bing, the creatures are asleep. Alternatively, and this is something that I've been discussing with a couple of the other podcasters, um, is the idea that you could rememorize your spell from scrolls. So let's say you want to memorize sleep, but you also have, say, hold portal in your spell book and you know hold portal might be a, a nice thing to have if you're being pursued uh spikes may not work well you could then um you know use your sleep spell and then you run into another situation where gee i'm gonna go ahead and memorize hold portal because i think later on i'm gonna need it and you could do that um 
And it's a nice way of having a quote-unquote traveling spell book. It's interesting because the OD&D and um, to some extent AD&D try to discourage you from walking around with your spell book because spell books can burn very nicely or otherwise get damaged or destroyed or stolen or whatnot. And then the magic user's in a really bad jam. But by walking around with scrolls, it gives you a different way of being able to have the ability to either memorize or use the spell as you want. Something else that I, and I remember this from playing Holmes as, as a kid, was the idea of throwing a flask and then being able to throw a torch at something and igniting it. And in Holmes, um, that mechanic is you have a base target of 11 on a d20 to hit and there's some pluses and minuses and whatnot you know like your dexterity and the situation and the size of the creature and so on but the idea that you know you roll an 11 or better well that flask hits well now you've got to throw the torch so an 11 or better than you know the torch hits and in Holmes um the damage from that happening, having the flask, you know, burst on a creature and then being able to ignite it with a torch is um, 1d6 D damage the first round and then 2d6 damage the second round. So you, you're getting a total of 3d6 or hopefully somewhere around 9 to 11 points of damage on that target, which, you know, for especially for OD&D is a really nice damage number to have um i like that and i remember using it and even in AD&D, that number has always stuck in my head so that when you know someone says oh i'm gonna throw an oh uh, you know molotov cocktail okay we'll roll a d20 and tell me what you get and i'm mentally thinking in my head it's got to be an 11 or better so that rule's kind of stuck all right so let's take a quick dive into holmes next to OD&D and see what's interesting about how Holmes may clarify OD&D or branch away from it. Now, I'm going to warn you right now that my observation is that Holmes is a mix of OD&D and the first supplement, Greyhawk, which I don't know if it started off like that or if that's just the way things happen. It seems to be fairly consistent. So I have a feeling that uh, Dr. Holmes did indeed enjoy and use some of the Greyhawk rules. Um, what's interesting is um, that uh, Holmes makes it really clear in the charge end He's much more interested in the attributes than he is in the classes. If you look at the OD&D Little Brown books, they right away talk about, well, here's the kind of things you can be. And then, oh, yeah, here's some numbers that tell you, you know, various things about your character, your strength, dexterity, intelligence, and so on. And, you know, then it goes on. Well, now we kind of see the canonical flip here in Holmes where it's, Attributes first, then classes, then all of the other stuff. And that certainly is kind of the, 
pattern that has stuck since then. AD&D did it, both 1E and 2E, and I'm kind of vaguely remembering 3rd edition, I think, is like that. And certainly, almost every single retro clone that I've seen copies that pattern of attributes than class. Now, interestingly, um, Holmes makes it really clear that swapping of attribute points between non-prime and prime attributes is a permanent thing. If you read the OD&D rules as is, and I'm, I'm going to read this here for purposes of doing the attributes, quote, clerics, and this is for the strength attribute, <clears throat> excuse me, quote, clerics can use strength on a three-for-one basis in their prime requisite area, <coughs> excuse me, uh, parentheses wisdom, for purposes of gaining experience only. Now, that's kind of interesting because in OD&D, you can actually kind of interpret that to say, well, I have this shadow attribute value by swapping in either strength for wisdom or intelligence for strength or what have you, but that only applies for being able to meet the uh, requirements to get an extra 5% or 10% uh, bonus to your XP. But Holmes seemed to really come down and say, nope, this is a permanent swap. If you're swapping, you know, three strength for one wisdom or two intelligence for one strength, it's final, and that's the number that you end up with. Um, obviously, um, uh, with the classes, Holmes has the classic fighter, magic user, cleric, and thief. Something that I thought was interesting is um, Holmes, from the very beginning, says, if you're a cleric, you have a specific alignment. In OD&D, you actually don't really need an alignment until you get to 7th level, and then you have to pick whether you're on the side of law or on the side of chaos. Holmes just says, eh, you're the same alignment as your god. Go do things. Hmm, that, that's kind of interesting. Um, going on now into the classes, uh, it is uh, dwarves and elves and halflings act as fighters, um, except for elves who can be fighters and or magic users. Something interesting in um, Holmes, though, is he calls out the fact that dwarves and elves have infravision. Now, if you go back to um, OD&D and by virtue of that, go back to Chainmail, dwarves are called out in Chainmail for being able to see in light or darkness, um, but not when in the employ of PCs. OD&D assumes that PCs need light, like a torch or a lantern or something, to be able to see in dungeons. Um, but monsters don't need that. Monsters can just see in the dark. In OD&D and Chainmail, and the reason I keep going back to Chainmail is because in OD&D it says, go see Chainmail for Elvish and Dwarvish uh, powers and abilities. Uh, there's no call out to elves to be able to see in the dark. So really the only PC class that should be able to see in the dark as long as they're not around PCs would be dwarves. I thought that was interesting. However, Holmes comes out and just says, nope, 
all of them have InfraVision, and this comes from Greyhawk. Greyhawk, um, the first supplement, called out that dwarves and elves and halflings would indeed um, have InfraVision. Um, Holmes uh, adopts the variable dice for hit die by class, but interestingly, later on, Holmes says all weapons do d6 damage, which I thought was an interesting take on things. <laughs> Something else that I remember from my childhood, uh, and, and I'm going through the book here, so we, we've just gone through attributes and um, uh, uh, classes and races. Now we're getting into equipment. The cost of plate mail went through quite the inflation between OD&D and Holmes and AD&D. If you look at plate mail, plate mail costs 50 gold in OD&D and the same in Holmes Basic. But it is a whopping 400 gold in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So if you played your first or third level fighter, you probably were walking around with plate mail by the time you were second level. Um, but you probably needed to earn quite a bit of treasure in AD&D coming from first level to be able to afford plate. I thought that was... Uh, I thought that was kind of funny. I do remember being very happy that Holmes allowed me to have plate mail for 50 gold. Now, one of the things that Holmes Basic does somewhat well is or reorganizes the information so that things aren't as hard to get to. But partway through the book, Holmes gets a little weird in the organization. So... He talks about, you know, character generation and equipment. He talks a little bit about NPCs and alignment, but then he immediately jumps into time, movement, and discussions on traps and secret doors and wandering monsters, complete with encounter tables, I should add. And then he jumps back to, oh, here's the experience and how you level up. I thought it was a little goofy, but okay. I, you know, we'll go with that. A big difference between Holmes and OD&D is alignment. And it's interesting here because um, in OD&D, you have basically the three alignments, law, neutral, and chaos. And then Holmes, you start to see this kind of this quad approach where you have lawful good, um, lawful evil, neutral good, neutral evil, you know, that the, there's good and evil and lawful and chaos, and then you, of course, have neutral in the middle. Whereas then AD&D goes to, of course, the nine, you know, lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good, and, and so on. So I started flipping back through all of the supplements and books to see where did this break happen and how did it happen? And the only thing that I see is that in the third supplement to OD&D, Eldritch Wizardry, there's actually a section um, where some of the characters and creatures are described as being highly evil or highly good and so on. So I guess there was starting to be a concept of all of this. Holmes does a four quadrant and then AD&D does the nine. I don't know. It was, uh, it was just interesting. Um, let's see, what, uh, what, what other things that did I find interesting? Um, 
Holmes had an interesting rule in Surprise, where he says, um, if you are surprised, there's a one in six chance you might drop something. Now, that's not an OD&D, so I don't know if this was something that got added on later or if this was a Holmes invention that has just... Uh, I know I've seen it in other uh, places, and I can't exactly remember if it's in the Dungeon Master's Guide or the Player's Handbook that you could drop something when you're surprised, but I, I remember seeing it. Uh, what other differences? Because I'm getting a little long in time here. Um, da, da, da. I've got, I have a lot of notes here, but you know, I'm getting close to 20 minutes already, and I and I don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want to to dive into 45 to 50 minutes of, of detail. I will note that um, Holmes seems to have added some of some different spells. Um, if you look at the lists of spells for Magic user. They're roughly the same as the Greyhawk list, but Holmes adds um, to first level Dancing Lights, Enlargements, and Tensor's Floating Disc. And in second level, he adds Audible Glamour and Ray of Enfeeblement, which I thought was interesting that he's bringing over some of the Illusionist spells, which were um, first discussed, I believe, in one of the strategic reviews and now I'm having a complete mind meltdown. I can't remember if it was an Eldritch Wizardry or not. So I'm embarrassed, and please feel free to comment back and tell me what an idiot I am. Um, with the cleric spells, Holmes also added a couple of interesting uh, spells. Remove fear and resist cold to first level. Second level adds no alignment and resist fire. And those were in neither OD&D and Greyhawk. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, one final rule that I want to point out that I found interesting that um, certainly is not in OD&D, and AD&D makes it a little bit more complex, is parrying. Holmes makes it pretty simple. He says, you know what, if you're going to parry, you can do that and you subtract two from the attacker's roll, but you don't get to attack that round. Um, if the attacker rolls exactly what is needed after subtracting two, then the defender's weapon is broken. So let's see the attacker, let's say the attacker normally needed an 11 to hit you. Well, you're parrying, so now they need a 13 or better. If they roll that 13, then your weapon is broken that you parried with. So I, I don't know. I kind of like that. I thought about maybe perhaps using it in my AD&D uh, game, and some of the players are interested, and some of them are like, eh, I don't know. One other thing that I found interesting is Holmes breaks apart how weapons can attack and how many attacks they have per round. So in Holmes, a round is 10 seconds. Unlike OD&D, which kind of is fuzzy on how long a round is, and in AD&D, which says a round is a minute in length. So with Holmes, if you have a quote-unquote light weapon, something like a small weapon, like a dagger, you can attack twice per round. Heavy weapons, two-handed weapons, only get to attack every other round, which that's kind of interesting. Um, one final thing that I want to uh, point out is th the treasure types. So I always wondered how and when the um, 
individual treasure types that were from Advanced Dungeons & Dragons came around. When, when did they first uh, show up? Well, they first show up in homes, and I'm talking about the treasure types J through N, which, you know, have 3 to 18 copper, 3 to 18 silver, and so on. That's not in OD&D and in Greyhawk, but the treasure types for the individual and then the new types O through T show up in homes. Now, I don't know if this is something that got brought over from advanced D&D and Gary just wanted things equal, or if this is something that Holmes had come up with and Gary took that over to AD&D. And maybe a little bit further research and looking into uh, how that happened would be interesting. So with all that said, I want to say that, um, you know, I had fun playing Holmes when I was a uh, a young teen, but unfortunately, I never got to play with anyone. Um, I bought the box set, was thoroughly entranced by it, drew dungeon after dungeon, couldn't get anyone to play with it. Finally, uh, bought the Advanced Dungeons and Dragon books myself. Um, you know, tried to learn the rules, tried to mishmash both of them together. It really wasn't until after I got the Basic and Expert book box sets that my friends started showing some interest in playing. And I was able to join an AD&D game with the quote-unquote adults at the local game store. So I never got a chance to play Holmes back in the 70s. It was the game that I read that got me started down this road, but not until the aughts when I went to a convention game did I actually finally get to play Holmes from beginning to end. So, yay! Um... So I guess coming back to the first question, would I use Holmes to help explain OD&D? And I have to say, I would not. There's interesting differences, and there's some things that Holmes does that make the game, you know, feel a little different. But I don't think the language that it uses is enough to make OD&D any more understandable than it might be to go and grab a retro clone and use that. Um, Holmes has some quirks, it has some organizational quirks, and there's enough differences and enough mashing together of the Little Brown Books and Greyhawk that I think it really is its own game. So, um, you know, is it worth getting and ever looking at? Absolutely. The game's fun. Um, it's got some interesting little tidbits, and as a document to see the transition from this, you know, kind of hobbyist thing to now something that was going to be published and become the backbone of a corporation, it very definitely is a very interesting thing to read. All right, that's it. I want to make an apology to Jason, who left me a call-in from my last episode. I'm not going to be able to play it because I'm already at 26 minutes, but I will definitely play your call-in the next time around. Thank you all for listening, and game on.